Hi, this is Mike McGinn, and welcome to You, Me, Us, Now, a podcast where we talk to people who try to create change. And this song has been running through my head ever since the the murder in Ferguson of Mike Brown. I guess that was controversial for me to say murder, but it was a horrible death. That's Link Ray. He's singing about, it's from the 1970s, it's called Falling Rain. It's, you know, total social justice stuff of the, of the era. And here we are, you know, 40 years later, and the same issues are still plaguing us. And we went through very difficult issues here in the city of Seattle uh, regarding excessive use of force by the police, bias in policing. I had some very challenging issues dealing with that as mayor, working with the advocates, working with our police department, uh, trying to find a pathway through to find something better. And I guess part of the reason I like that song is it's, it's sad because it's a very sad issue to, to deal with. My guest today is Lisa Dugard, and she's the deputy director of the Defender Association. She represents, she's a lawyer. She represents people accused of crime. But as I discovered, she is much, much more than that. Uh, when I was running for mayor in 2009, I met Lisa, I think, for the first time. She handed me a book about the disparate treatment of blacks by the police in Seattle. She had led a project which collected data about arrests, prosecutions, convictions in Seattle, and frankly, the data was damning. I read it, Lisa. You'll be pleased to know. I could tell. Yes. The report was never actually published, as I recall, but it's was uh, copies were in circulation. It was very influential. I think the next time Lisa came to my attention, I was sitting with the command staff of Seattle Police Department in a weekly meeting. The topic was criminal trespass which is if somebody has been around a place too often or has committed crimes, the police will give them an order saying you can't be there. Well, if you give too many orders of that sort to a kid, you're actually verging into a place where it's unconstitutional. And Deputy Chief Sanford was describing to me the issue, a new way to deal with it, and I remember he said to me something to the effect of, you know, instead of fighting Lisa, I decided to sit down with her and try to figure out a better way. And something similar happened uh, a little while later with uh, Deputy Chief Pugel. He was describing to me a program called Law Enforcement Assisted Diversion, which is instead of arresting low-level offenders with addiction problems, the police would refer them directly to services. Uh, This was an idea being pushed by Lisa Dugard. And and again, instead of fighting Lisa, I'm going to work with her. So when we face serious issues with use of force and bias in policing that uh, led to an agreement with the Department of Justice, I turned to Lisa Dugard to be one of the chairs of the newly formed Community Police Commission. But that's just the recent past. She's defended hundreds arrested during the WTO riots. She directed the Urban Justice Center Organizing Project, was legal director of the Coalition for the Homeless in New York City, um, and she's done a bunch of other stuff. So I think it's fair to say, Lisa, that you're one of the most influential individuals on police and justice reform in the city of Seattle. Although I guess uh, you're going to say you're not influential enough. Right. <laughs> <laughs> no, I have just the right amount of influence. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. And I think the other interesting part is that as an advocate and an outsider, she became respected by those with direct authority and started working with them as well, which I think is an interesting role. And vice versa, which somewhat to my surprise. What do you mean? Well, that respect goes both ways. I have come to a point where some of really my favorite people on the planet are cops and prosecutors and Anybody who knew me back in the day would never have thought that was 
even theoretically possible. And it's it's really true. You know, that's not that's not all police officers. That's not all prosecutors. But I, I have come to believe that um, there are people in each of these sectors that work on these issues who have more in common with one another than most of us have with, you know, our own base in many instances. There's, you know, there's two kinds of people. There's people who really, who really care and really are willing to be brave and um, push themselves to depart from the way things have always been. And then there's other people who like the way that things are and came into, you know, whatever um, area of practice they're in because they liked it as it was. And those of us who are willing to change things, you know, finding one another ends up having a lot of power. That was certainly not my... Um, that was not your original that, path. That was not my plan. <laughs> no. That was not your plan. Well, it's interesting that you talk about that because I I came into the job of mayor not knowing very much about policing or police reform or police issues and, you know, frankly, being very suspicious of the police. Mm-hmm. And I think there's that challenge of trying to walk the line of finding the people in both camps who are prepared to find a different way of doing things. It's really easy in politics for everybody to go back to their own bunkers mm-hmm. and start lobbing shells at the other is what I've discovered. <laughs> yeah, well, it's so true, you know, and I was one of those people. So before we get into when, when we close this out with my 1970s song, you know, <laughs> the point is going to be all about how much we all have in common and have we have to find each other and reach across those divides. But I guess we're um, both children of a certain era, aren't we, Lisa? Yeah, not that that was really going on in that era right. in in uh, the ways we're talking about now. But um, but when I you know became a lawyer and um, in the early days, the early decade um, of my work as a lawyer, I literally, I mean, I'm not being, I'm not exaggerating here when I say that I thought that my job was to you know oppose anybody in a uniform stop them from doing whatever they wanted to do because it was inherently wrong and bad. And, you know, my task was to get in the way. And uh, that was that was it. That was as far as I could see in terms of, you know, the goal and what I aspired to was just to, um, you know, oppose the police and by extension prosecutors. The lobbying of shells, you know, I, I was absolutely one of those people. You know, how that... <laughs> How that shifted for me, I think it's just very it's very similar to the story on the other side. If you talk to the cops that we've ended up partnering with, that it turned out that that wasn't working very well and that a different approach has much more transformative potential. But that's just an empirical you know, discovery for me. It's not something that I really um, there wasn't a model for that. And there still really isn't a model for that in this country, how to take seriously problems of policing and race and profound inequality and try to really make change in those areas through partnership with, quote unquote, the enemy. I mean, people don't do that. And it's really viewed with suspicion. When I, um, I know we're starting. Well, let's, let's, let me, let's dial it back Mm -hmm. because you said people who knew you back when would never have predicted that. So let's, let's turn the clock back to back when you grew up in the state of Washington Mm -hmm. and you went to school where? I went to college here at the UW. And then after that, where did you go to school? Went to graduate school at Cornell and then eventually law school at Yale. So you, we, we were talking a little bit before the show started. What happened when you went to grad school in Cornell? And uh, how did you get engaged? In, and was that your first activism then? Almost. I, w- before I went to graduate school, it was the very beginning of the um, U.S. Um, intervention era in Central America. The Reagan administration was... Um, opposing the Sandinista Revolution in Nicaragua. 
there was a figure in the local activist world, Ben Linder, who was um, at the University of Washington when I was in college, used to ride his unicycle around campus. He was a very notorious, very sweet guy. I mean, notorious only for riding a unicycle. So he ended up being killed in Nicaragua. In um, He was assisting with a hydroelectric project that the Sandinista government was putting in in, rural, in the rural part of the country. And he was killed by the Contras that were support, the anti-revolutionary forces that were supported by the U.S. So I had this little bit of personal connection to something that felt, you know, wrong and I politically opposed. I also studied theoretically um, anti-colonial uh, political movements in college. In terms of my own sense of activism, I really thought that direct action was silly and ineffective. But when I went to graduate school, I it was... Um, the mid-80s, early to mid-80s, and it was the really high watermark of the anti-apartheid movement in South Africa. So in 1985, students at Columbia started what became the contemporary U.S. divestment movement, disinvestment from South Africa-related stocks during the apartheid era. And Cornell was really the next campus to pick up the baton, and I got deeply involved in that movement. What did you do there? Oh, we organized sit-ins in the administration building a day hall on on the Cornell campus on a daily basis for um, you know all spring 19, in 1985 and then um, from there you know spent the next two years organizing a mass-based uh, campus uh, anti-apartheid movement Cornell's was the biggest and most sustained in the entire country and what was your role in that um, I was kind of the den mother the my students call I was a graduate student my students called me the Kool-Aid mom I you know they, they had shan- they, we built shanty towns which I also I was wrong politically about this entire movement I thought shanty towns were a terrible idea they ended up being the hallmark symbolic um, anchor of the of the divestment movement you know people would build these shanties I would make coffee in the political science uh, lounge and bring it out all night as people were you know sleeping in the cold and um, but I was also the facilitator of meetings and sort of found my niche as uh, the convener of people. But then I also defended people. We were um, we were constantly uh, on the cusp of getting thrown out of school in uh, administrative proceedings. So we needed a defense, and I ended up organizing that and doing that. And it was only a matter of time before I realized that I was uh, not making any progress on my Ph.D. dissertation whatsoever, but I was on, which was on the criminalization of homelessness, incidentally. I was getting up at 4 a.m. to, you know, get briefs written to, or to defend these people. And finally, I was thinking... You figured out what you really liked. Yeah, I was like, I should probably do this. <laughs> so I'm willing to work very hard at this. Um, yeah, so that was both the... So is that what led you to law school? Yeah, it was the beginning of my commitment to, to direct action and my understanding of the role of direct action, but also my interest in law, which I had previously, you know, discounted as not very intellectually... Uh, challenging, and uh, I was interested in consciousness and um, the formation of consciousness. But I, I decided that law ended up being a, cri- a critical tool for people who are mm-hmm. trying to change consciousness. So you went to law school. Went to law school, and well, nominally. What do you mean nominally? <laughs> Same thing unfolded there. I didn't go to class very much, but I did attend law school for three years and did ultimately graduate, although not on time. So what did you work on if you weren't going to class? Well, I ended up, I was doing, you know, doing political work um, in the, this time from 1989 to 1992. So it was was an interesting time of uh, the high watermark of identity politics in America and a lot of not very memorable stuff, like having three month long debates about whether to put Fidel Castro on the board of our law journal called Law and Liberation and um, other important 
struggles. But <laughs> the thing that ended up being more important um, in my, certainly in my life, was uh, that in my third year of law school, we ended up litigating a challenge to the George Bush administration concentration camp for HIV positive Haitian refugees who were held at Guantanamo. And that was so, actually... So what was happening? Haitian refugees would come to America found to have a... And what would happen? Yeah. So there there was a coup in Haiti in 91, where Jean-Paul Aristide was, um, was thrown out of office by a military junta. And his anti-capitalist supporters fled the country because they were um, being massacred. And the Coast Guard was picking people up and basically had invented a Haitians-only asylum program that had no authorization by Congress or under law. Um, they were screening people for asylum on Coast Guard cutters and returning people to Haiti who they didn't um, find met this made-up legal threshold for asylum. And um, so there were some legal challenges which failed. We ended up taking up the baton, as it were, on that right at the same time that uh, they, the administration moved the um, processing of these refugees to the Guantanamo Bay naval base. And was the intention, as it is today, to kind of remove it from the oversight of the courts? Absolutely. Guantanamo was thought to be a location that was subject to U.S. control, but outside of the scope of U.S. law. And so our case was essentially an attempt to pull that back and say, you know, if the United States can impose its will on people in this location, the law has to follow that exercise of authority. And what happened? Well, the particular story with this episode is that uh, everybody who, I mean, they were screening people uh, again, for asylum using this made-up legal standard. And they were bringing a lot of people into Southern Florida who passed, the, I mean, not a lot, but they were bringing significant numbers into Southern Florida who passed that initial screening. But they were not bringing people who passed the initial screening. They were not bringing some people, and we were investigating why they were holding them at Guantanamo. It turns out that they had um, screened them also for HIV. And if you were, if you had a credible claim of political persecution, but you are HIV positive, you're going to be left literally to die. I'm not uh, exaggerating here either. The the INS, the immigration spokesperson at the time, said that they expected the refugees to die there. <laughs> so they're being held in this bar barbed wire concentration camp at Guantanamo. And honestly, I had never heard of Guantanamo. I, this is the first I realized that the United States had a naval base in Cuba, which seemed odd the Castro administration was still in power, given that um, right. proximity to the U.S. naval might. But this is still, you know, astounding, basically, that there was a, a place where no laws applied mm -hmm. other than those that were decided by the U.S. government. Mm -hmm. It was their the executive branch of the U.S. government. Exactly. It was their official legal position that they could do anything that they wanted to. And um, the judge, a really heroic individual named Sterling Johnson, Jr., who was an African-American former um, narcotics prosecutor, federal uh, drug prosecutor, who had served in the Marines, actually, at Guantanamo, he questioned uh, the, the immigration lawyers in this case and said, are you really saying that you can do anything you want? You could even torture these people. And their position was, yes, they, they probably wouldn't. Um, and of course, later they did. <laughs> you know, right, not, right. Not to this, this group, this, but... This experience resonates to the present day. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, this was the, the precursor to the use of Guantanamo for other purposes. And what happened to the uh, Haitian refugees? Well, we won, ultimately. Uh, we won a case that nobody thought we could win. And we won <clears throat> as a... And, and the camp was shut down, and the 300 and some people who were held there were ordered into the country by Judge Johnson after a trial. Um, but we only won because of an incredible combination of litigation, 
direct action, public education, and an amazing alliance between civil rights organizations and AIDS activists that had really not been seen in this country before. So it was really a great and my first um, direct example of being able to transcend barriers that that people don't expect. What do you mean by that, transcend barriers that you don't expect? Well, when we first started working on this case, um, some of the lawyers who were advising us, and again, this was mostly law students working with some Yale law professors, lawyers who were experts in the field and were advising us were just like, you know, you, you won't get anywhere with this. This is Haitians with HIV. You know, the sort of civil rights lobby in the in the U.S. has never... Uh, invested in issues of mistreatment of people with AIDS and HIV. And by the same token, uh, AIDS activists are not, um, you know, Concerned well with, known right. <laughs> right, for concerning themselves with these sort of anti-capitalist black people who are not U.S. citizens. So you'll never put together a coalition to do anything about this. What ended up happening was actually that the uh, strengths of each of those constituencies did unify around this uh, this issue and it created a political coalition that was ultimately uh, unstoppable. So you had Haitian activists marching in front of the federal courthouse, chanting, Haitian activists chanting, HIV is not a crime, why are Haitians doing time? And then AIDS activists chanting, no Aristide, no peace. It was quite possible to bridge those, those divides. How did it make you feel to be at the center of that? Well, it made me uh, ambitious, honestly, not personally ambitious, but ambitious for our movement that we should try to win. And that. Um, and if you could do this, you could. Absolutely. Who, who knows what else you could do? Yeah. And, and that is, you know, has continued to be kind of the watchword for me since then, that um, if there is no uh, expectation of winning, it's because there isn't a good enough plan. And um, we need to think harder and find that uh, route. And that leads directly to, you know, these sort of un unexpected and somewhat unprecedented alliances on police reform that we that we are playing out in Seattle today. I was smiling because I've been criticized for taking on some unwinnable fights in my time, but I kind of feel the same way. It's it's almost like, well, that's the fight you're supposed to fight is the mm-hmm. one that seems like the hardest one. Leave the easy <clears throat> fights to other people, right? Take on the hard fights. I guess I just think that we, you know, owe it to ourselves and one another to um, try hard to achieve actual change and not settle for, you know, the bomb throwing and the, I mean, the, the figurative bomb throwing or the literal bomb throwing and the easy criticisms from outside. It, it is easy to say what's wrong. Um, it is very hard to build and partly because it's imperfect. It will always be imperfect. And so some of your critics are going to have a kernel of truth in their, you know, right. in their critique. Right. So it's going to resonate. And um, so you see why people choose to remain on the outside. The police reform work that we started and that you became an integral partner with, Mike, you know, really started with a police captain challenging me and and my colleagues to build instead of just criticize. And who was that captain? So that was this guy, Steve Brown, who was the, um, you know, if you looked up police officer in the dictionary, it's his picture you would find. He is a cop's cop. He was um, the captain of the narcotics unit for SPD in the midst of our, when we were um, doing a big litigation challenge to racial disparity in drug arrests in Seattle um, about 10 years ago. He um, was head of narcotics then, so he was very much kind of <laughs> saw his face in the, in the crosshairs of our, our challenge. 
he and many others whom he worked with thought that we were calling them racists and really took it personally. But he was engaged in some discussions about, you know, whether we were all on the same page that there was a problem with race and drug arrests in Seattle. This is a meeting of my staff and the mayor's office and uh, Mayor Nichols' office, SPD, King County Prosecutor's Office, City Attorney's Office. And rapidly it became clear we were not all on the same page that there was a problem or what it was. But Captain Brown sort of called a timeout in this conversation and he said, hey, what if for our own reasons we were open to doing something different about drug enforcement? Well, what, what do you think we should do? And he asked it just about like that, very gently, very calmly. And the truth was, we had no clue. I mean, we... <laughs> You're doing it all wrong, SPD. <laughs> exactly. And and we have dated a show that the laws are applied disparately, depending whether you're black, Latino or not. So admit you're wrong. It was a grave problem. And admit right. you're right. And, yeah. and, and the SPD was saying, we're not as bad as you're saying. We're not doing it all wrong. And or you if and we you are, could, it's not our fault. Right. And they could have, And you two could have stayed there for a very long time. Basically. For decades, yes. Right. That's Yeah. So his question forced us to reckon with the fact that we we, were, we had not matured to the point that, uh, you know, if we were on the cusp of victory, you know, that we would have anything to put in the place of this very um, harmful, very damaging, very racially skewed status quo. And if you don't have an idea of what needs to come next you're kind of all wet. And, and he called our bluff and it literally took, you know, a couple years after that conversation for us to be able to come back into that conversation and say, okay, we, we think we know the answer. But by asking the question, he forced us to, into a, what I now consider to be a much more responsible and sober position and one that um, took seriously the possibility of winning. Um, and by winning, I don't mean that someone lost. I mean that we would actually change, you know, the landscape. Right. Change the system and get mm-hmm. the outcomes you want. Or at least move in that direction. And, you know, what what came next, which is the LEAD program that you uh-huh. talked about in the intro, um, Law Enforcement Assisted Diversion. You know, LEAD is really, as Dan Satterberg, the King County prosecutor, always says, it's it's a very big deal. And yet it is very imperfect. It's a um, it's a transitional vehicle moving away from the war on drugs. So in, in LEAD, uh, police describe officers. Yeah, sure. Describe it. So police officers can take people who are uh, under arrest for drug, a drug or prostitution charge, and maybe that'll expand to include some other sort of public order charges in the near future. And instead of taking them to jail and referring them to, pros- for, to be prosecuted, they instead are immediately taken to a community-based, well-funded, what we call guerrilla social services operation. And guerrilla because it's staffed by case managers who really their, view their job as doing whatever is necessary um, to remove obstacles from somebody's path who, you know, has seen a lot of obstacles, a, a population that's uh, 80% homeless, overwhelmingly addicted, overwhelmingly the survivors of compound trauma, serious trauma from childhood through adulthood, and people who have had terrible experiences with people who have, tri- who have claimed to be wanting to help them, people who have a lot of experience being told that what they're feeling and doing is wrong, um, very few experiences with people listening to them. And the case managers do listen to them, and they together put in place a, an individual intervention plan that usually starts with housing and then often moves to sobriety or a, a plan to get to sobriety, but it's a harm reduction program, so it's not a requirement that somebody come in and say, yeah, I'm, I'm going to uh, abstain from 
whatever I'm using, whatever substance I'm using to self-medicate the, the pain that they're in. So that's the model. It uh, aims How's to, it working? Well, lead is working really well. Um, it is not, again, it's not, it's not perfect. There is no instant solution for problems that have been that long in the making. And, but and you are, say it's working well. What's the data mm-hmm. on it working well? So we have an evaluation from the University of Washington that was just released last month showing that people who have gone through LEAD are 58% less likely to be arrested again compared to people who go through the system as usual and a control group that's comparable uh, to the LEAD group in every other way except that they didn't get wow. this diversion chance. So yeah, it's it's becoming difficult to justify doing things the way they were done for so long because on top and of And what's being, the old way? So the old way is, you know, tell people that we don't like what they're doing by putting them under arrest, booking them into jail, prosecuting them, convicting them, making them unemployable and unhousable, and expecting them to change their behavior as a result. That that um, that way doesn't work. It's not only expensive and harmful, but it's incredibly ineffective. And so, you know, I think everybody participating in LEAD thinks we can make it work even better, but it clearly works better than what we were doing. So what I was... I was saying that LEAD is meant to be a transitional vehicle. It's not the be-all, end-all. In in 30 years, neither I nor anybody else should be fighting to establish LEAD programs. By then, we should have broken ourselves of the habit of calling the police to deal with what are really public health issues. And we should, you know, ideally not have generations of people who have been abandoned and um, kids shouldn't be growing up without their parents who are incarcerated and... um, multi-generational reverberations of the war on drugs are really playing out in our streets today. But for the moment, people do call the police to deal with homeless addicts or untreated mental illness on the street. 911 is the shortest phone number that we have. We don't have, you know, right. a 911 that calls that that summons case managers to respond to these needs. So, knowing that the police are going to be called, knowing that community, you know, pressure on the police is is highly racialized. I mean, right. folks call about black people on the corner, don't call as much about white people on the corner, even if those white people are doing the exact same thing. Knowing all of that, what can we do to interrupt the process at that point and lead to healing, restorative outcomes that actually improve public order and public safety? And for the moment, lead is, you know, um, an intervention that turns the corner at, at that point of contact. So um, for the listeners out there, this did take the police coming to the table, the prosecutors at the city and county level, uh, the social service community, and the politicians, frankly, to stand behind it. Because let me tell you, you know, a press conference, and, and I ended up doing a few too, the press conference where you show off the guns you've confiscated or the drugs you've confiscated and the arrests. It always makes for good TV. Mm-hmm. I don't think lead makes for great TV. I'm sure there's some, been some good stories. But this program has really turned out to be a model that's getting attention nationally. A lot, mm-hmm. of, lot of articles written about it, a lot mm-hmm. of people looking at it in conferences. So uh, this is a big deal. So if you're listening outside of Seattle, look into lead. There is a different way to approach these things. Let me just break in and say, so LEAD has its own website. It's www.leadkingcounty.org. And LEAD is L-E-A-D, Law Enforcement Assisted Diversion. So leadkingcounty.org and lots of information there about how to uh, set up a program like that. Uh, Speaking of press conferences and arrests, SPD and the the current mayor recently launched their nine and a half block strategy, arrested 100 people. And you had a couple of quotes about this. 
the majority are being dealt with using the old school war on drug tactics is what you said. So how is it working? Well, and the reason I said that, um, the people at that press conference by and large are now partners in lead and folks I have come to have a lot of respect for. So I wouldn't lightly have, um, you know, come out punching in the papers. And that isn't me punching. If I were punching, I would have punched harder, different things. But I was responding to some comments at the press conference where, frankly, because of the goodwill that LEAD has engendered, there is a community expectation that we're not going to use those old tools because they are harmful and because they're not effective. In fact, we just had a big press conference to announce the LEAD evaluation a few weeks before the Nine and a Half Blocks press conference. And everybody was there The um, and we're very grateful for that. The um, prosecutors, the mayor, uh, the chief of police, the sheriff. But very importantly, also uh, all the downtown uh, neighborhood and business leaders were there welcoming this new paradigm. And so when the Nine and a Half Blocks press conference happened, uh, the press and the public had this expectation that we were not going to use these old tools. And so the elected leaders who participated all said, this is not the war. Well, they didn't all say it. Some said, this is not the war on drugs. And so I, for me, the paramount value is to always tell the truth. Do not you know, fake people out. Do not sell snake oil. We can agree to disagree. The lead is a partnership among uh, um, uh, entities that do, you know, we don't agree about everything and um, we respect each other's ability to take different positions on things apart from lead. Uh, and I do. But if you're going to arrest and prosecute people in the old way, you can't call it something other than uh, what it is because people get confused. And Almost everybody who was arrested in nine and a half blocks is being dealt with in in the old way. I don't think it's going to be uh, an effective um, strategy to change those individuals' behavior. And so I don't want the new paradigm lead or similar strategies to get, you know, tarred by association with these old tools. So we need to be clear on what we're doing. That said, the the folks who did who were behind nine and a half blocks did intend to divert many of those folks to lead and were perfectly willing to do that. It happened that um, eligibility criteria for diversion that I helped write um, kept a lot of those folks out. So that's where, you know, we have to own our own responsibility and we've turned our hands um, the last couple of weeks to revising those eligibility barriers and with the full cooperation of SPD and the mayor's office and the prosecutor's office, so I want to give credit where credit's due. Um, you know, these leaders are very willing to use diversion. We need to make sure that it's a tool that works as well as it can. But at the same time, that was also a moment where you can see how easily folks can slip back. The, the appeal of saying that we're doing something about a problem just because we've arrested a bunch of people and put them in jail, it, it persists. And um, it wasn't a hard reach to reach back and, and make claims that, uh, you know, we've struck a decisive blow against drug, drug dealing by putting a bunch of people in jail for these very low-level offenses. So I want to talk a little bit about police reform, because you and I actually spent a little bit of time together on this issue here in the city of Seattle. And uh, it, I, I'm not even sure how to get into the issue to, to talk about it. We, I have an idea. Okay, you go. So uh, a few months back, Cleveland uh, came under was one of the cities that came under uh, the Department of Justice's uh, scrutiny, and they are now going to have a consent decree. When that happened, there was an op-ed written by, I don't remember if it was a council member or some opinion leader in Cleveland, 
um, about how Cleveland's elected officials should deal with it. And the uh, the op-ed was, don't do what Mike McGinn did. <laughs> oh, my God. I saw that one. I saw that op-ed. So I called the people I know in Cleveland and said, y'all need to do exactly what Mike McGinn did. Um, because I, I cannot say enough about how important the approach that you took to this issue was in setting Seattle up to really see meaningful and sustained uh, reform of policing. I actually, somebody sent me that op-ed. And, and I don't agree with you about everything. But no, I'm no. Really, we, so I'm not just pandering. <laughs> but you no. were right about this one. Well, this was the this was the issue. And I remember reading that editorial from Cleveland because uh, somebody forwarded it to me. And it was basically, it was something I experienced. How dare you question the Department of Justice in any way for their plans? What you need to do is simply put them in charge of everything. Yes, was and- the political dynamic. And I did, in fact, resist that dynamic. For, yes, for you engaged num- in independent thought. <laughs> yes. Which is some a dangerous sort of federal a da- crime, I think. It was, well, it was, a da- it was certainly a political crime. It was a dangerous political crime to engage in independent thought there. And, and my thought was multifold. One was I actually called up mayors that had been through the process. I looked at what had happened in other cities. And the track record of the DOJ is mixed. In some places it works well, in some it doesn't. We, we also brought uh, somebody in uh, to help work with us on it, Connie Rice. And the other thing was all of the community groups were saying to me, we want to be at the table to negotiate the deal. Right. Now, it was impractical to bring all the community groups into the negotiating room. But what I tried to do was move as many issues as I could in that consent decree to be dealt with and reviewed by a community police commission that had our community leaders and our police department at the table to talk about how to deal with this. Because frankly, I trusted my community more than I trusted the DOJ in dealing with some of these issues. And if you actually went through their first proposal with a fine tooth comb as we did, you'd understand why you shouldn't trust them. They had a lot of bad ideas in their first proposal that we needed to weed out for expense or impracticality reasons and try to replace them with good ideas. Boy, did I take a lot of heat for that, Lisa. I can't even describe to you how how difficult that was as mayor to deal with trying to say, well, let's figure out the best way, not just do it your way. Yeah. So this whole episode, you know, fell victim to, you fell victim to people's penchant for um, dichotomies. You know, you're right or wrong, you're with us or against us. And here you were really trying to map out a third position, which is, you know, emphatically supportive of police reform and supportive of a community perspective on police reform. And there was a very robust, independent community view on what real reform would look like in Seattle. Um, And in particular, there was a community organization called Minority Executive Directors Coalition, which had a task force on police accountability that had been working. We'd all been working together for 10 years on this issue. And you had... I held multiple meetings with you guys. Right. And strong relationships with um, the leadership of of that group. MEDC, that task force, when we read the DOJ report, um, as much as, you know, folks appreciated DOJ validating that there was a problem and there was a problem. And the request for an investigation came out of, you know, the, years of frustration. Yeah, years of frustration yeah. of, you know, we'd been raising these issues from the community, uh, you know, with, with all the, the power and tactics that we could come up with and really getting no purchase. You know, folks asked for DOJ to come in to try to change the balance of power, and that did happen. And I, I don't think it's DOJ is not always right, and none of us are always right. But the difference is that that is not 
you know, when, when other people speak about this issue, I think it's understood that they might not always be right. DOJ uh, comes into these dynamics with local jurisdictions with incredible leverage. And that can end up being a conversation ending move when it really should start a conversation about, you know, what are what are the solutions that each community needs? You tried, in my view, to, um, you know, save some space for that conversation. And really, it came very close to being snuffed out. And you, I think, Mike, you paid a big political price for this. And I, for one, am really grateful that you took the position that you did, even though you ended up paying a big price. And it was not well. I mean, you were you were um, pigeonholed as being anti-reform when actually you were championing a sort of a Seattle-based solution to police reform. So because you were stubborn about that and dug in <laughs> and um, did what was right, I remember- We got, we got a pretty good agreement well, at the end of the day. So my, you know, my- uh, Favorite thing about your time in office as mayor was your your sign in your window of your office that said, do what is right. And this was a big instance of doing what was right, regardless of the cost. Well, let's try to extrapolate, because now we see these issues. The DOJ is coming into numerous cities mm-hmm. um, across the country. I look at Ferguson, uh, for example. Clearly, things are very bad in Ferguson. And the DOJ, as you've said, incredible catalyzing role mm-hmm. in starting a conversation mm-hmm. But when I look at Ferguson, they're balancing their budget by fining people. Mm-hmm. They can't they can't balance their budget any other way. And I look at what the cost is in the city of Seattle, and I don't see any way for Ferguson to pay those types of costs. And then I look, it, this doesn't look to me like a scalable solution to get police reform done. I think there are a number of problems with, with the approach. One is cost and just sort of the priorities, where you're going to spend money. Here in Seattle, the cost of implementing the consent decree is enormous, and it's sort of an article of faith that you can't question those costs. The uh, it is important for communities to be able to have an honest conversation about whether, in the at the end of the day, is ten million dollars for a business information system more important than more money for mental health? Um, How much do we spend on lead a year? Uh, well, lead is tiny. It's eight hundred thousand dollars for the downtown program that the city's investing uh, at this point. So it really is a priorities conversation, and the place for that conversation to happen is in the affected community. Around the country, uh, jurisdictions with DOJ consent decrees are starting to ask whether it would make sense for DOJ to engage in a cost-sharing arrangement where anything that they think it's important for the city to pay for, they should have to pay for. That does tend to sharpen the mind sometimes when you have to write the check. You could re-examine whether this is really so essential. But I think the other flaw in the model of change, it's really a question of what is your theory of change? And if the theory of change is that DOJ is going to come in um, from you know 3,000 feet, 30,000 feet, and devise a checklist that you know if you do these things, then policing will change in this community, I mean, that's bound to fail. That is not how you know the role of the Civil Rights uh, Division in the 60s was one, uh, I mean, it was contested and it was a dialectical process uh, back and forth between movement groups and DOJ for sure. And there was a lot of push and pull. But nobody thought that DOJ was going to come in, devise the movement strategy, implement it and uh, get results. You know, there were people on the ground from the affected communities who made the plan, put their bodies on the line you know, gambled and lost or gambled and won with certain strategies. The proper role for DOJ was to put their thumb on the scale in those local battles. It was not to fight the local battles in lieu of 
these local forces. Well, we need to remember that lesson today. And a crit- I mean, I, I think that what happened here and what has playing out around the country too often, you know, it, it plays out as DOJ is going to force a set, a suite of reforms down the throat of the local police department and the local authorities. And if there's any resistance, it's because, uh, you know, the, the police don't want to change. There can be other valid bases to object to a particular reform strategy other than resistance to reform. In Seattle, this compromise deal that you set, ended up setting up and negotiating with DOJ that's proven so, I think, inspiring to other people around the country involves actually putting cops at the same table as civil rights leaders and seeing if we can find common ground. It's turned out we have almost always been able to find common ground, much to all of our surprise. We had no experience or track record doing that. We really didn't like each other coming into the room. I think we expected to have a bunch of divided votes. But we gave it a shot, and it's turned out that we've almost always been able to find a third way that met community needs and was operationally viable from the perspective of the cops. And the practice of having those conversations is what, to me, has been the most transformative. We have created a space of mutual respect and dialogue. And when I go to these conferences on policing reform around the country, every community is asking the question, you know, is it possible to work with the police unions? Is it possible to change police culture? And really, I feel like only in Seattle are we experiencing that yes, it is. We have developed genuine relationships of respect between not only some of the um, you know department leadership, but also the unions and and civil rights organizations and former police critics, to the point that at this juncture, you know there is, there are even folks within the police department who have stood up for the rights of post-Ferguson Black Lives Matter protesters in Seattle when they felt that their department didn't handle those um, those protests very well. I, we, I've just, you know, that, to put it mildly, is not a dynamic that we've seen in any other city, and I think it's a direct result of the partnerships that you set up on the police commission. You know, this the, you, you talk about a theory of change, and when I look at this, there's one theory of change, which you mentioned is a very top-down one. Mm-hmm. Right. You're going to come in. You're going to have new systems, new approaches, force the wrongdoers to do right and eliminate the worst of them. Right. And it's a very mm-hmm. top down and very formal and very formal It's about formal compliance. And if, if it's anything I learned in four years, there's many things I learned in four years. But one of the things I've learned is that civil servants, including uh, police officers, are very good at figuring out what are all the rules of formal compliance that they need to comply with while they go about doing what they want to do anyway. And if you want to get true reform, you actually have to get people to want to do it. And in fact, there's something of an analogy here to the LEAD program. We're going to end the war on drugs by arresting and prosecuting wrongdoers. No, we actually believe we need to meet people where they are, understand what their challenges are, and help them find a different path. And there are officers who need to be let go of the force. And it's very hard to do so. And most police officers agree with that. Right. And it's very hard to do so because of civil service rules as well as union protections. But there's a lot of officers who are in it for the right reason and who want that respect and status within the community that would come from stronger community relationships. So the theory of change I was looking at and we we were working on implementing was how do you get engagement between the public and the police force at multiple levels? There's the level of, you know, the very top leaders communicating. Then there's you know, a light, you know, which is in a sense the community police commission. But then 
how do you get people into a room with police officers as often as possible at the precinct level? So we did a, a safety summits in every precinct where we brought in people from different communities. And then finally, there's just on the street because it's in that relationship building, I think, along with all of the other things, you know, mm-hmm. good discipline systems, good training, high expectations. But it's ultimately in the relationships that I think that you're going to see see the change. And that means people have to start connecting with each other. You know, like in any good relationship, both parties have to have a voice and have to have confidence that the other party is going to listen to them. That is not happening in the police reform discussions in this country right now, by and large. The flaw with community policing has always been that the community has not had any power in that conversation. And police know that they have to act like they're listening to the community, but there's zero uh, requirement that anything change as a result of those conversations. So with consent decrees, with DOJ's role, and um, with the you know movement in the streets these days, there is a stronger community voice, and, and the Community Police Commission has absolutely given civil rights and neighborhood leaders some purchase in that conversation. At the same time, we have to listen to cops. Any theory that we're going to change policing without listening to cops is you know, flawed from the, from the inception. When we do listen to cops, they are not defending. I mean, anybody who's going to actually sit down with us and talk, they're not defending excessive force. They're not defending. And they're not defending the war on drugs. They're not defending old uh, enforcement decisions, which they individually were never making to begin with. Those are made at a political level. They're made in response to pressure from city councils and mayors. They really want to know what is our job. What do you want us to do? In When Eric Garner's, when the officer who killed Eric Garner on Staten Island was not indicted in December, I was in New York and um, was listening to a press conference that Pat Lynch, who's the president of the Patrolman's, uh, Patrolman Benevolent Association, the, the police union in, in New York, he gave uh, a press conference right after Mayor de Blasio gave a, a speech that was very critical of NYPD. And Pat Lynch, the union, the police union guy, came right back at Mayor de Blasio and said, you know, basically you're a hypocrite. I get it that you don't like this outcome, but you send us out there every day to do quality of life, broken windows style arrests. And last I checked, that was still what you wanted us to do. So if that's the situation you're putting us in, basically, he's like, this is what you're going to get in a small number of, you know, a small fraction of, of cases, but you're sending us out to be in confrontation with people like Eric Garner. And is that what you want us to do? I really need to know. That is a very fair question. If we are talking out of both sides of our mouth, we want you know police officers to be the ones that show up at 4 a.m. and remove people who are soaked in urine and you know infected with scabies and are sleeping in a doorway. We want them to get do something with that person and remove them. We don't want to do it, but we don't want them to you know engage in racially disparate policing and we don't want them to ever have any physical confrontation. I mean, there's a there's an inherent tension in that definition of the job, and it is fair for officers to seek clarity about you know what we think their mission is. When we've begun those dialogues and and have really been as critical of the community input into policing as we are into the police input <laughs> into policing, we found common ground um, to make some really profound changes. But the community has to own that by and large, the police are doing what the community wants. And until we change that, we're not going to see very different outcomes. At at some point, I had managed to 
getting most of the police department pretty angry at me in, in my tenure. And I sat down in front of a bunch of them, about 20 of them, more senior officers. And they went around the table and they beat me up pretty good. But I remember what one of them said, and I, I gave it back to him. You know, that was my style. One of them said to me, a line that sticks with me today, and it, you reminded me of it. You ask us to clean up the garbage that nobody else wants to touch, is what he said. Mm -hmm. And I remember my reaction was at first, oh my God, he's talking about a person as garbage, right? That was the first reaction. And then the second reaction was, and yeah, I get it. He, you ask us to do that. You ask us to treat people that way. Mm -hmm. Oh, you ask us. So the point you're making that the community has to accept its complicity in yes. the expectations for what they want to see. And we see that all the time, um, you know, clean up downtown, mm -hmm. right? Remove these homeless people from our view within, with encampments. And uh, I don't know, maybe I'll be a little bit bold here. There's an element that occurred, in my opinion, with the Department of Justice. Sign the consent decree, and now we have an agreement that will make it go away. As opposed to, no, we actually have to grapple with the, what, how we got here, and we need to root it within our own community of how we got here and not ask somebody else to solve all our problems for us. Because only when we grapple with the fact that the police, to a great degree, are representing the majority sentiment of the city and what they would like our city to look like. And I know that's a hard thing to say in liberal Seattle. But we oh have to God. grapple with that. Nowhere is it more true than in liberal <laughs> Seattle. I mean, that and that is the that is the thing I was trying to call out about the press conference about nine and a half blocks is that we we cannot we, we should not pretend that we're not doing what we're doing and that we're not asking the police to do what we're asking them to do. If we want to change that, that's a political responsibility, a community responsibility. The police are really, you know, like a glove on a hand. It's the hand itself that, you know, we need to, to look at. And the hand is us. So um, I remember I went to a like a young Democrats policy dinner a couple years back and, you know, very well-intentioned young people um, trying to figure out what to do about policing and race. And they asked me, did I think it would be a good idea to require all, you know, cops to go to an undoing institutionalized racism training, which incidentally, the, the police commission has been working closely with SPD on, I think, some really innovative training on institutionalized racism. But my answer was really, you know, no, because <laughs> unless, um, you know, at least not, um, not without a great deal of thought about how that is presented, because what cops see is that people who, you know, want to keep their own hands clean um, and think it's so easy want to send them to a training about how to do something that, that those policymakers, you know, are themselves unwilling to take responsibility for. And there is a real ivory tower quality to discussions about policing and fairness unless folks are willing to really deal with the reality of what officers see when they're sent out every day to, to do their work and answer the question that Steve Brown, that police captain, posed to me years ago now, you know, what do you want us to do? Then we're not going to, we're not going to make it possible for that to turn out differently. I will say with LEAD, the biggest surprise to me was that, was how easy it was for these cops. And, and 
by the way, that the police officers involved in LEAD are not like the social worker cops in the community you know, police team or anything like that. And I'm sure the community police team would be insulted by my description of them like that. But <laughs> these were, um, the, the LEAD started with the most proactive units in the police department, the anti-crime team, the bike squad. Um, these are like almost like the um, street crimes unit in NYPD uh, years ago, really hard-charging guys. And they were not my favorite cops, and I was definitely not their favorite public defender because they um, you know, they were high producers. They made a lot of drug arrests, a lot of other arrests. When they were given a different cho- set of choices and some different tools, it didn't have to go to some big training to uh, allow them to make effective use of those tools. No one had given them the option before of meaningfully responding to the needs of the people that they were that they were encountering on the street. The only option they had had before was do nothing or take the person to jail. So once they were given this third way, I mean, they have taken to it like fish to water. It's not that there was any problem with the people, and there was not that there was really any problem with the mindset. There was a problem with the job description, and they didn't write it. So it's funny. You, I think you were present when I was at a Belltown community meeting one time. Somebody from the crowd, we were, we were talking about drug dealing, other issues on the streets of Belltown, at least 100-plus people in the room. I'm in front of the room taking questions, and somebody asks the question, why don't you just arrest them all, mm-hmm. leading to a, a big round of clapping, mm-hmm. as I recall. That was a tough tough town hall. Sanford came in and defended me, pointing out that it, we probably had arrested them all, and probably <laughs> more than once, mm-hmm. and it hadn't worked. Mm-hmm. But the other side of that equation is the one that you hear towards the police. Just fire them all. Right. Right. And and this trying to find some middle ground here where we actually get the community and the police coming in to work on uh, complex answers to complex problems, not the simplistic answers, is I think the biggest challenge here because this is so passionate. We're talking about public safety. We're talking about dignity of individuals and and racism. And it just is so explosive an issue. So this has been a great conversation, went longer than I intended. I don't know that we solved anything, but I, I do hope people, as they're tackling these issues, think hard about what solutions look like, not just what's wrong. Absolutely. It is complicated to fix things, and it's risky, and it means putting yourself forward for something that's inherently going to fall short. But if we're serious about making our community better and healthier, we have to step forward in that way. And Mike, it's something that you did as mayor. I hope it was um, gratifying and worthwhile because <laughs> it um, wasn't necessarily immediately rewarding. Um, but those of us who, you know, you set up to do this work on policing, um, you know, we really appreciate that that vision that you had. And I think it's going to prove to pay off. Well, you're, you're awfully nice to say that, but I was just taking the lead from, from really good people in the community. And, and frankly, there were some folks in, in our police department, too, who were real leaders as well and wanted to see a different way. It, it was, I'll be honest, it was very disappointing to me how politicized it became. Uh, in my mind, when you're talking about these issues, you know, that was the time to leave politics aside and everybody come to the table. But it was too big and fat and ripe an issue for us to pull that off in the political arena. So I'm really hoping that other jurisdictions can find their way through it too. And I think the answer comes out of organizing at the end of the day. I think communities have to stand up and say what they want if they're going to get the politicians to listen listen, and do something Organizing different. and dialogue. And on all sides, there's the responsibility to listen as well as to speak.
So I've really enjoyed this conversation. And I get to start the show with a song. So you get to finish with a song. What did you pick and why? So this is Cat Stevens' song, Oh Very Young. And I chose it because when I was a kid, I used to listen to it. I was about eight years old. I listened to it on an eight-track tape player. And um, for me, it is about how if we're going to change things, uh, love is a more powerful mechanism than bitterness and accusation. And it's also about realizing that our victories are partial. Um, he talks about uh, the goodbye makes the journey harder still, which means that, you know, it's going to come to an end sooner than we would all like. And we've got to make the trip and the journey um, uh, as sweet and as good as it can be, because in the end, that's what we're left with. Thank you. Thank you, Mike. Oh, very young, what will you leave us this time? You're only dancing on this earth for a short while And though your dreams may toss and turn you now They will vanish away like your dad's best jeans Dan and blue, fading up to the sky 